Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, hello, it's Brendan here with Mark, episode 234vetgurus.com, March the 25th, 2000. 2022, Mark, 2022. How are you, Mark? I'm great, Brendan. Really, really good. The weather's a little bit inclement, as we talked about before, but geez, it hasn't brought my mood down. Yes, well, as um, technical difficulties sometimes interrupt the flow and we had to reschedule this podcast because we we couldn't be on the internets together um a day or so ago so here we are mark ready to record and i'm well also and plug it away i see you've um recently posted some um as usual stunning photographs um of wildlife and of interest i saw you had a picture of an echidna there and we had an echidna in recently for a bit of a health check um i it's an ongoing case i won't talk too much about it but um it um they're amazing creatures they're one of my favorite um animals of all time mark echidnas as uh wombats as far as these <laughs> well um the two, two australian sort of iconic creatures that um i have a particular fondness for so you you managed to spy one or more echidnas out there in the wild mate we've seen quite a few now we, i think we're up to eight that was one of the first ones and it was um and as i said in the post it was it was i was, I was dead set keen on i'd been mucking around with this bird and hopefully going to get a great shot of it nothing happened the light was changing and i was starting to get into a bad mood brendan and bemoaning my foolishness for pursuing the bird and trundle in trundles this little spiky personality and rolls over a few logs and looks up at me with that snout and says what the hell are you doing here and then trundles off it was yes. just and they, just, they i know what you mean when you say like i don't have favorite animals but every time i'm in the vicinity of an echidna or a wombat for that matter they lift your spirits they're animals that um uh disproportionately lift they all lift our spirits but these ones i don't know what it is about them but i like you they lift my spirit yes they are a um, a special animal, um, as they all are. But as I mentioned before, some are more special than others <laughs> um, in my in my in my eyes, anyway. And um, echidnas are one of the mark. Um, I'm going to jump into. We we've had an email that we were briefly chatting about that I think we should talk about on air, Mark, rather than just. Um, talk off here about them and that's from uh, nick about um, a fabulous case that he worked up and, and he has a question relating to it mark that um, i think we may or may not be able to help him out i'm um, probably not as <laughs> usual um, so the email goes a few months back we had a wonderfully dedicated bearded dragon owner that allowed us to do a contrast enhanced ct to prep for surgery to address a cephalic aneurysm in uh, this bearded dragon as previously reported, Nick says, um, the aneurysm was fed primary from a branch of the internal carotid artery based on the CT scan. Despite ligation, well done, um, of the vessel leading into the aneurysm, it continues to fill. 
and eventually it ruptured into the mouth and the dragon was euthanized. Necropsy revealed only the outflow of the dilated vessel. So I don't have a great explanation on why it continued to fill. Any words of wisdom from Nick? Um, well, um, I just have a couple of comments, Mark, and then you can you can mention your pearls of wisdom and then I'll, I'll make a couple of comments. But, um, yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it, when you have a client that will go that extra mile to be able to um, afford and, and um, wants to work the case up and perform a CT scan on it. And even more so for um, taking that to surgery, Nick, and managing to ligate that vessel because, you know, the few that I've done, and it's certainly less than five, um, they're, they're a bugger um, to, to, to try and identify that, that vessel, even if you have identified it previously on advanced imaging, it's because it's messy when you get in there, is, is my thought with, with the ones I've had anyway, in my experience. Um, so well done with that. I don't think you could have done any more with that, Mark. Um, so what's your thoughts on this, Mark? Why do you think that that's recurred, or why did um, it continue to fill and then subsequently rupture? Well, I think there's two possibilities, and neither of them um, are, are the, you know, I, I wanted to also add my admiration for Nick doing the surgery, and I've got no doubt he did a great job and, and the appropriate vessel was ligated. I think um, there's two possibilities. The, the We've talked about this before, and I think that um, these occur because there's weakness in the walls of uh, vessels that um, probably my, uh, there's probably a whole bunch of possibilities, but um, maybe some uh, developmental issue when, when the eggs are being incubated or maybe even some nutritional issues from the parents. Um, but the, I don't think it's a single location. It most commonly is um, as Nick uh, records from the literature a branch of the internal carotid but I think there's that's the one that blows because it's a high pressure vessel with a weakness you know with a low pressure it can it can blow most easily um, so I wouldn't rule out um, weaknesses in other areas the other thing that jumped to my mind Brendan was the possibility of um, I don't know the specific anatomy well enough but I wonder about um, uh, um, collateral circulation, whether the aneurysm was continuing to fill because of flow from the for, from the forward direction, from the what would have previously been the outflow of the blood vessel from the location of the aneurysm, if a short distance away there was a collateral artery, arteriole, um, then maybe it has sufficient pressure to run a little bit up backstream considering the vessel's been ligated and there's no more forward pressure and that's how it's refilled um so i think um the look i'm going to put some pressure on nick this is the pressure part of the game he has to publish this i bet he's got some beautiful pictures both of the imaging and the surgery and and uh and and you know my opinion about uh, making sure that you take the time in private practice to publish some of these case studies but I reckon this would be an excellent case study case to have published and to trigger those extra questions Brendan. Yes I agree um, I think I think um, and don't don't be afraid of flicking us a couple of pictures of it um, Nick just for our interest even if you don't want to 
go to the extent of writing it up, which you should. Um, we'd love to have a look at those pictures um, of the of the surgery and or the CT scan there, Mark. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'd just like to make one other sort of overreaching sort of comment about the thing that yeah. Um, looking for underlying causes with these aneurysm ones. I mean, we, we, we still haven't tied down why that whole process happens in these species like the bearded dragon where it's the most commonly seen. Um, we think of what is sitting in the background, you know, what cardiovascular issue, issue issues um, that affect the cardiovascular system are, are causing it. So even though you might want fix one point of it um, and clip off that aneurysm, then the system's still not normal. Um, and it's going to blow, as you, as you mentioned, at, at some stage um, down the track. Um, you know, the way I'd my anecdote, my, my uh, the way I'd look at it would be, you know, you, you have a, I know you're laughing already. I haven't even told you what I'm going to say. Um, the um, you have a puncture in your car, Mark, and you're used to this on the road all the time. Um, and a nail goes through your car tire. You take it to the tire place to get fixed, and they put an inner tube in that tubeless tire um it's never the same is it mark um never the same. The, it's not as not as solid as it as it was so it's it, it's ready to blow again <laughs> so um i i don't think he certainly hasn't done anything wrong and why is that going to recur or continue to fill um the point you mentioned about potential other backflow effects etc or, or collateral um problems there but I, th I think I'd look at it at the broader picture that, you know, what, and, um, instead of looking at that little point where, where it has blown initially or we have got that aneurysm, you know, what's wrong with the whole system? What's causing that aneurysm in the first place? Um, and the answer is we don't know. Uh, I think we might at least have some smart person in the future will work that out, um, perhaps Nick. Um, and once we address that, it, it may be that perhaps these animals do have cardiac primary cardiac disease and they need to be on, you know, um, cardiac meds, meds to control blood pressure or whatever um, to help reduce the chance of these aneurysms occurring. But um, fascinating and fun case, Mark. And and these are the sort of cases that you that um, a real a real joy to to see. Um, apart from the fact this one didn't make it in the end, but um, they still are fantastic to to. And that's why we do the exotic pets, isn't it, Mark? That's why we love doing what we do. Um, Look, I think the other thing I'd say about that, Brendan, is that I just want to echo, like I know when Nick, Nick has put so much effort and so much professionalism into this case that it is heartbreaking when that individual patient um, doesn't make it and appears not to make it because... Um, you know, the thing refilled. So to the client, it might look like nothing was done. Um, but I would, I would say that these cases and the effort that goes into them, they're across my career, I've seen this happen repeatedly where people that go that, the veterinarians who go that extra step, they learn something more or they add to our um, uh, overall um, amount of data that we have or knowledge that we have. And they, um, inches or sometimes much more than an inch um, take us closer to this to the understanding and solving the problem so um, so yeah I, I um, celebrate these sorts of cases in private practice and while it didn't have the best outcome for the patient involved um, I know it'll take us a little bit further to solving it for all patients and pats on the back to Nick for that yes 
Absolutely. I'm going to jump into a news story, Mark, and I love this news story. I'm going to take my one first, and it's about the Sonoran Desert Toad, which was once common in the US Southwest and Northern Mexico. And it's actually listed in as endangered in New Mexico, and campaigners are now pushing for the toads to be protected, Mark, and it's not for our usual thought, um, you know, habitat destruction there. It's because of its demand for a hallucinogenic venom, Mark, um, that's used because the renewed interest in psychedelics. um, And as you would certainly know, Mark, there's been a psychedelic renaissance lately um, and there's a whole sect of community devoted to this particular desert toad, Mark, and that venom's supposedly, Mark, supposedly, um, is said to have remarkable qualities that it can end people's dependence on methamphetamines or opioids um, and it's typically dried into crystals and smoked and it's, it supposedly provides a half-hour hit without the drowsiness and side effects of hallucinating and vomiting, which apparently you get with some of these other psychedelics. And it's known as five or bufo or buffo, depending on your pronunciation, and it's $250 US mark um, that you can um, take take it as part of a ceremony in Texas um, where you, or in Mexico where, you can, where it's legal and you can pay as much as $8,500 in, in um, wealthy beachfront areas, according to this article. So what's happening is um, numbers are dwindling because um, people are, you know, grabbing up these toads and... Um, killing them and using them, hunting them and using them, the rustlers, um, for this hallucinogenic drug use, Mark. Um, So they're wanting to make the toads protected and to stop this happening. Um, So what do you think about this, Mark? Um, I think lots of things, Brendan. One of the things that that, um, was new to me was um, the size of the Sonoran Desert Toad. Um, they, They are you know, olive green, like most toads, and only slightly smaller than an American football. Um, Geez, that's a big toad. And um, I had visions of them, you know, being about two and a half centimetres long and, and, um, and, uh, you know, many hundreds of them having to be harvested for your eight and a half thousand dollar hit. Um, But um, crikeys, they're big bloody animals. Yes, they are. They can, and on... You know, on Wikipedia, the, the, the other name for them is a Colorado River toad, Incilius alvarius, um, and apparently can grow up to 190 millimetres, Mark, seven and a half inches long. Jeez. So it is the largest toad in the United States, apart from the non-native friend, the cane toad, Mark. <laughs> um, yes, so it is a big toad, so yes. But otherwise, I don't, um, like, I don't know... I don't know anything about the, you know, I don't want to comment on the, the needs of humans. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I do see an opportunity for some uh, entrepreneurial herpetoculturist to um, um, maybe have like a significant farm of these things and, um, and, uh, and lower the pressure on the wild stocks by breeding them up. Surely that's a thing that they could do, Brendan. And I'd expect that there's a fair bit of work going on with this venom with 
you know, medical pharmaceutical you know, uses. Yes, yes. Um, interestingly enough, I think one of the other reasons why it's popular is Hunter Biden, um, the son of the US president, credited the venom with helping cure his addiction to crack cocaine. And the quote from him was, the experience unlocked feelings and hurts I'd buried deep down for too long. So there you go. So... So you're not heading off to this one of these retreats, Mark, um, to try this particular substance for that 30-minute hit? I think I'm going to give it a miss just at the moment. <laughs> I think you're you just... know what I'm like. Anyway, you, you know me well enough to know that there's, no, there's nothing deep or hidden in me. It's all surface and superficial, so there's no big advantage <laughs> to, to going, going looking for stuff that's not there. Yes, and, and you'll just stick to a, an ale or two, won't you? I'm sure. Exactly. What do you have for us, Mark? What's your new story? Well, mine is, as is many of my um, news stories, uh, it's, it's associated with birds and it leaves me with mixed feelings, Brendan. Um, uh, the, the story is that um, it's just been reported. It hasn't gone into the scientific literature yet, but um, Beth Shapiro, uh, the Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, has told a Royal Society of Medicine webinar that her group has completed the sequencing of the genome of the dodo. And this of course, in the popular press now leads to the potential for maybe the reconstruction of the genome uh, because it's been entirely sequenced. Um, and then does that lead us into that well-known, um, well-recognised media um, uh, spotlight where we can talk about um, bringing the bird back? Well. It's not quite that simple, Brendan. Uh, it is. It took quite a long time before her team um, got sufficiently well-preserved DNA to establish uh, the genome. And there is talk about, um, you know, there's very closely related birds, uh, the Nicobar pigeon, uh, which is uh, a uh, um, commonly kept bird in captivity and so but um, um, very closely related genetically to the dodo um, and so is it possible the scientists could edit the Nicobar pigeon's DNA to include changes that would make it dodo DNA and bring the species back well it would be very hard with birds it's it the technology we have for uh, um Working with DNA in this way is far more advanced for mammals and um, and not nearly as advanced for birds. So we've got a long way to go. Um, and then we've got to ask, is it the right thing to do with a sum, you know, first of all, clearing all the birds' habitat, then burning every bit of fossil fuel on the planet to create a hothouse, completely changing the environment, um, should we bring a species back into the hellhole that we've turned the modern world into? <laughs> um, these are questions for people much smarter than me, mainly you. Should we do it, Brendan? Well, speaking of big animals, big frogs, gee, the dodo was a big bird, wasn't it, Mark? It's uh, about a metre high or so. Yes. Um, it was, um, again, looking on Wikipedia, um, supposedly... 
ten point six to seventeen kilograms in weight, Mark twenty three wow. to thirty nine pounds. So it's a big bird, um, and I think the name supposedly came from um, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Portuguese word. Portuguese word for being what? Um, foolish. Foolish, yes, because it um, didn't run away or try. It didn't run away fast enough when people were hunting it. Um, yeah, my answer is no, we shouldn't bring it back. I think you're right in that um, we've got enough issues of, with trying to keep the ones that are endangered at the moment, let alone recovering the dodo. Which is extinct, Mark. So I, yes. I, I, I'm. A, I think we've mentioned this before, but I'm a big. Um, I, I, I worry that dead the security, die, Mark, like dead. The security that this <laughs> artificial sense of yes, we can just bring any of them back, so we don't have to worry about the ones that are going extinct now, because we'll yeah. just bring them back too. I, I don't like that. We've got to save them. We've got to look after the world. Let's go. I agree. I agree. Okay, let's jump into our main topic um, because it's a potentially big one. We might even split it up into two, Mark. Um, it is a big well, topic. It's a, it's a bit of an overview topic, isn't it? It's really a syndrome more than more than a disease process in itself, although I sometimes talk about primary abnormal seeker and we may even mention that. So our main topic is abnormal seeker in rabbits and it's commonly referred to as intermittent soft stools or ISS. Um, in some textbooks in some regions of the world, Mark. So let's jump straight into it and um, get back to the basics there, Mark. Um, do you want to chat about the types of faeces we see in rabbits and what they're called and what's normal? Well, I'm sure that most of our listeners are well aware of the fact that rabbits produce two types of stools. They produce the, um, you know, the end product of digestion, the little nuggety pellets, the faeces, and they produce um, a, a product from their um, cecum, which by sort of steps out, you know, the, the indigestible food goes in the mouth, down through the digestive system, enters the cecum and gets broken down by uh, various microorganisms, is passed and then re-swallowed so that the rabbit can expose those broken down nutrients and vitamins to the absorptive surfaces above the cecum and then obviously it gets passed out as the feces. So there's two sorts, the cecotrophs and the dry, hard, round, ball-bearing-like, nuggety, normal stools. Yeah, so these cecotrophs, Normally, um, they can sometimes look like a little bunch of grapes. I suppose they're mucus-covered and typically they're directly eaten from the anus or shortly after being passed by the rabbit to, to recycle because it's a, an evolution or an adoption to, to try and get the most of that really poor quality food that they're eating in the wild. Um, so they're passing it through again and trying to extract the most they can out of there. Um, and what we tend so what we what we're talking about today is abnormal production of those cecotrophs um, or or excess production of them, um, and we shouldn't be seeing that. It's abnormal, as I just mentioned. Um, and yet, some clients will be bringing their rabbits into the clinic, and you'd flip that rabbit over, and you'd see these soft cecotrophs caked around the backside area, around that perineal region. And the owner says, oh, yeah, 
you know, that's normal. Um, I clean his or her bum every day or every week and we give it a bit of a shave and a Brazilian and um, they think it's a normal process that's happening there. It's certainly not normal there, Mark. So what? apart from that, what are the classic signs that you'd be seeing in practice, Mark, or that you'd have clients reporting with, with this abnormal seekotrophs? Well, I think the key one um, that uh, um, really always worries us that you haven't already mentioned is that um, uh, that it's a surprise to the clients. They, first of all, aren't, you know, they might find them in the enclosure, in the rabbit's domain, um, and they're only used to the normal stool. So that shock of seeing something different throws them into disarray. Um, and the other thing is that... Um, there's always complications because of that soiling. Um, the area of the perineum um, uh, is inflamed, is painful, sometimes associated with uh, other um, uh, elimination disorders, and even gets to the point here in Australia where we see uh, complication by uh, flies um, uh, irritating the area. And so we'd often be alerted to ISS or abnormal secotrophs by a case being presented for fly strike, Brendan Myasis. Yes, and they're nasty, aren't they? Those those rabbits with those maggots around the backside, and unfortunately, some of them. By the time we see them, although the client may only see one or two maggots there, it's a pretty severe infestation, and it can be a real struggle to treat. And um, We'll cover that again in another podcast at some stage, um, fly myosis, if we haven't already covered it there. Yeah, and the other, other signs we can see are just because it is uncomfortable um, and they have perineal scald um, and or urine scald there that we can see that some of these animals brought in for behavioural changes. So the client says, you know, my, my rabbit that's normally a very placid rabbit's a little bit grumpy when we're picking him or her up or vice versa, a rabbit that's... Um, Normally grumpy doesn't mind being picked up anymore um, because they're sore around that backside area. Um, so what's our initial treatment for these, Mark, as far as um, cleaning up that um, area that we've got going on there in our initial sort of first aid, I suppose? Well, I think it's important to be fairly aggressive with these early, Brendan, because um, as you said, often the clients will have a little bit of a laid back uh, laissez-faire attitude you know it's something that happens every once in a while but once we get to the point where we can see that soiled fur around the perineum um, I think we've got to aggressively clean up the area and um, I noticed that um, you will frequently use the term bunny Brazilian um, you'll have them maybe sedated provide some analgesia um, and uh, clip the area up aggressively and then consider um, some topical treatment options. Assess the area. Um, like I'm, I'm always cautious in these cases with antibiotics because obviously the microorganisms in the cecum, you don't want to knock them around and make the problem any worse. Um, but there is times when you need to think about topical antibiotics for the inflamed skin beneath that uh, matted Yes, yes. So it's providing immediate relief, I suppose, to that animal and, and, and physically cleaning up that area, whether maybe that bunny Brazilian or, or gently bathing the area and or clipping the area, um, providing some analgesia because a, a large percentage of them, they they've certainly look and pro almost certainly have a 
painful region there and it's very inflamed and erythemic and often swollen in an area. So it's making them comfortable and stabilising them um, and then starting to dig a bit and, and working out why does this animal have this acute and or chronic um, intermittent soft stools or abnormal cecotroph production, you know, what's causing it um, and addressing that problem rather than, rather than just doing that first aid, you know, band-aid um, of, of cleaning it up there. So what are some of those causes, Mark? Well, Brendan, it's um, it, the, the first thing to do. <laughs> have, you, have you got your long list there? Just fold out the list, yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say that it is a long list and um, and it is complicated and, and it's often, uh, there's often a series of different things that are adding together all at once that trigger the problem. But in the way of uh, working with rabbits, uh, you will, you know, if I was doing, if I was at university again and I was doing a test, and the question was, what is the cause of this problem in rabbits? I would say diet without even knowing the answer because nine times out of ten, diet plays a critical role. And this particular condition is just another one where diet is the first, second and third uh, most important cause, I would say. Yes. Diet. Diet, diet. Um Multifactorial, yes, um, and we always look at the husbandry and diet in specific detail. Um, but some of these chronic ones, and, and yeah, well, let's jump, go backwards a little bit. Um, acute cases, so we may have a rabbit that's never had a problem with abnormal cecotrophs, and then it has uh, over over a day or two, it develops um, some clumpy cecotrophs around the backside, and it may not be anything particularly insidious with that animal it could be just a, a stressful event for it mark um, that the owners moved the hutch they had a party um, that night um, um, before it started um, they did a sudden change or oh, there we go diet um, in diet from the normal diet um, and it developed an acute um, intermittent soft stool um, that can be rapidly um, rectified and i think it's um it's one of those disease syndromes that often occurs because people will make assumptions about you know about their rabbit being just like every other companion animal and and you know um, we've definitely have had cases where the a girlfriend's moved in with a boyfriend the boyfriend has a rabbit the girlfriend moves in with her cat and the cat and the rabbit seem to get along just fine but yes. then they end up with um uh with with problems just like abnormal cecotrophs because the rabbit doesn't necessarily express its frustration at being now housed with a predatory animal the way that we would normally interpret it. They often are just quiet and withdrawn and staying very still so that not an object of, um, of attention for the predator. Um, and the change may be as simple as something like that that sets yes. them off. Yes. And for those chronic ones, and we'll talk a little bit about the diet i know we have spoken about rabbit diets many times in the past with our podcast but we'll summarize the, the common themes or factors that are implicated in the abnormal cecotrophs as well but um, some of these chronic ones we can also can be related to other conditions and yes yeah, there is a very long list so we it's, it's one of these problems one of these conditions or syndromes that we think what else is wrong with that animal um you know it's analogous to the to the rabbit that that 
develops the, the fermites. Um, you know, why has this rabbit got an immune system problem? What other disease processes happen in there? And that's what I, the way I tend to look at it with these chronic intermittent soft stool ones. If we can't track it down to the diet there, it may be an older animal, for instance, that has has a bit of a sore back or sore hips or arthritic uh, osteoarthritis somewhere, um, especially around the back end of the rabbit, um, and it doesn't sit properly to defecate. It cannot get to its backside to clean up and ingest those cecotrophs. So it, it could be related to something like that as well um, or some other sort of chronic disease process that's going on there. So it's a matter of working up the case as we recommend with most of these so it's stabilizing the patient cleaning up that backside there and starting to dig a bit deeper certainly going into that background of the diet and the husbandry there so we should really summarize that that diet aspect now mark do you want to sort of um do a brief summary of what what's implicated in causing the long-term abnormal <laughs> cecotrophs um well it's um changes in the diet. So the normal diet we would like to see um, would be uh, something like 70 or 80% grass uh, plus a, an, um, a selection of leafy green vegetables. Um, and then usually uh, the, the many people will feed their rabbits treats and those treats will often you know, be, uh, you know, one of the common ones that I find is uh, people will often give their rabbits little pieces of, of apple, even uh, dried, um, dried apple. And um, those fruits um, and other treats that are often offered to pet rabbits are rich in fruit sugars. And um, of course, those simple carbohydrates feed a different uh, selection of bacteria. Um, those bacteria uh, can sort of overwhelm the normal bugs in the cecum and cause uh, gas or um, the production of different chemicals in the cecum, altered patterns of contraction in the cecum. All these things are directly resulting from changes to the diet, particularly those simple sugars, will lead to uh, abnormal cecotrophs and then the series of complications that arise from them. So we're a big fan of not giving your rabbit too many treats, Brendan. Yep, fibre. That's my answer, fibre. Um, they need more fibre because more often than not, it's an animal that's here on a crappy diet and they're feeding. And they're often fed. We, we regard as all the rabbit mix as a disaster, so we say really? don't feed any rabbit mix. Um, and even in the normal healthy rabbit, they don't need pellets. Um, they don't need pellets if you have access to the more sort of natural sort of setup there. Um, grass, weeds, um, a large range of veggies is, is the ideal diet. And if we don't have that, then the next step down would be the hay um, as, as a convenience factor for them. And if we're struggling with that, then we might add a little bit of a supplement of some of the, you know, recommended pellet diets there. But more often than not, that these ones that are related to the diet is, yeah, they're feeding those muesli mixes or they're feeding crazy foods like, you know, bread or, or something something bizarre. And that's, you know, getting back to the consultation and the hospital cases, we always ask our um, small mammals or any patient that's dropped off for day surgery to um, have a little snack pack dropped off with them and bring a lunch pack for your rabbit um, that is the food that's normally fed to your rabbit. You, you love those, Brendan. You love it when that happens. It's amazing. 
Yeah. You, it reveals, like, how many times have you had the client <sighs> fill out the questionnaire with the perfect answers? And Hay then and veggies is what they say they're feeding, yes. <laughs> and then the snack pack that comes in for their day surgery, um, it has an array of things which will all have a big X next to them in the do we feed these rabbit to rabbits. Yes, that's right. So it, it reveals a lot. The true it's a, the truth serum, Mark. Um, the truth truth pack. That yes. So diet, diet, diet. Um, and my only comment about that ch- ch- those chronic um, abnormal cecotroph rabbits. It can take a long period of time with some of them, um, weeks to months, um, sometimes never, depending on what's happened with that gut long term, to get back to normal. So, um, but. More often than not, the vast majority of them do improve dramatically, if not completely. Um, and the ones that don't improve completely, um, they almost certainly do improve. Um, so instead of having a sloppy bottom where they have to clean it every day, it may only be once a week or so that they have to do that with them. So I think you need to make sure you tell the clients um, or warn the clients that it's a bit of a bit of an ongoing process. It's not going to happen overnight. And, and once we start changing that diet, in the initial periods too, sometimes the problem can seem to get worse um, um, when we're converting it from the bad diet to the good diet. And I, I typically warn the client that once that gut's stabilising again and readjusting, that that don't don't think that, yeah, it's getting worse because we're feeding the diet that the vet's recommended. It, it's taking a while for that gut to settle back down again. Now, I've um, got a question for you, Brendan, before we finish up. Um, do you think that um, we've, we haven't done it with the, the – uh, abnormal cecotroph bunnies um, because changing the diet and managing the underlying problems tends to work really well. But do you think there could be a place in the treatment of some of these cases for uh, fecal, what do they call them? Fecal infusion, fecal transfer type Poo milkshake. <laughs> well, not so much. I, I always worry about um, in, um, well, most animals that... Um, uh, uh, fecal infusions that go in the front end that get exposed to the highly acid environment of the stomach and actually yep. do nothing. And that's um, when we have to do, and I thought you were going to talk about probiotics and prebiotics and, and that ties in with that as well. But yeah, we won't get yeah. on to that. We'll, we'll have a chat about that in another podcast, Indeed I think. we will. <laughs> um, so sorry, you were saying, do, do so have I... Run a tube up their butt with uh, um, a fecal infusion. No. Says, no. Have you tried it? No, uh, we have. We have done it uh, twice to um, uh, bunnies that had been inadvertently given um, amoxicillin and clavulanate at other practices, um, and and were pleasantly surprised at the result okay. in those two cases. Um, but yeah, I wonder. I wonder whether um, these cases, particularly the, because most of them respond to those more gentle management. <laughs> techniques um but there there are occasional chronic ones that might uh might benefit but i also worry you mentioned it before i think there's some structural changes to the cecum and the lower bowel in some of these cases scarring and whatnot um that means and, they- and i think what happens is yeah they get a nut you know as part of that whole process there's an overproduction of that mucus um and that's all tied in with but just snowballs from there so the mucus is 
more of it and it, and it's sort of more sticky and that's why it tends to um, sit there yep. around the perineal region there. So um, whether or not that oversupply and production of that mucus um, will be reversed in the long run, I think with some of the ones that never get there, it's just that, yeah, that whole, whole, whole yeah, structure has, has been altered. It's not just the... The flora and fauna are in the in the gut. It's the actual physical, yeah, um, villi, etc., and the production and and the way everything works in there, as you mentioned there, yeah. Um, but no, I haven't done any colonic irrigation um, of of these animals, um, and um, I certainly don't want to have one myself as a therapeutic. And I know people who. Well, I don't know actually. I don't, don't know anybody at the moment who's had them, but um, supposedly it's a very cleansing both for the mind and the, and the body um, but it's not something that I'm looking forward to having or, or want to have in the future the only time I'll have that um, potentially will be if I need a colonoscopy and um, I certainly know members of the family have had that um, and they take the colonoscopy um, fluids um, the night before and it's it's a cleansing procedure Mark I'll tell you that much uh, yes um, any any other comments before we close? I know, and it's a tricky one. This one because it's it's you know these abnormal cicatrophs. It's it's. A, I, I think we can't underestimate how common this problem is or this syndrome is in 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 rabbits. We we see it all the time. Um, we see it all the time. So, and it's something that we need to chat to clients regularly and yes a, a large percentage of them we can track it down to the diet but it may not just be the diet with them and with some of them it's a, it is a bit of a long haul we're trying to normalize the situation with that individual and I always do warn them that there is a possibility that we may not get there um, and then we and I have had cases where we can't reverse it Mark have you? Yeah definitely that's the case and and I think that Early communication um, so that the clients have a reasonable expectation is a good thing. So not many, but they do occur. Okay, any final thoughts before we get out of here? We've got a couple of more topics now, haven't we? Um, probiotics and prebiotics um, in rabbits. We'll have to do that one sometime in the f near future. No, Nothing? All good. Let's go. Let's get out of here. Okay, we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time you